All right. Good afternoon. Welcome back on a, a pleasant Thursday. Um, as I mentioned uh, during my opening lecture, those of you who are here for that, um, <laughs> yes, I was just suggesting I appreciate you're still here, uh, given the opening lecture. Um, this past March, I attended a conference hosted by the Society of Early Americanists in Bermuda. You remember me talking a little bit about that maybe in the opening. Um, the translation, as I said then, was that I really needed to get away from State College's long winter, uh, having just arrived here from Nashville, and that seemed like just the perfect antidote to head to a conference in Bermuda in March. Um, it coincided, the conference, with a year-long slate of activities uh, commemorating the 400th anniversary of the wreck of the Sea Venture, flagship of the Jamestown Third Supply Voyage, a wreck on which Shakespeare's play The Tempest is loosely based, and which initiated the permanent settlement of Bermuda, the second uh, English colony in the Americas. Attended by more than 300 participants, the conference featured a set of unusually rich panels. One such panel focused on Bermuda's place in the Atlantic world, and one of the presenters on that panel was Clarence Maxwell, our special guest lecturer today. I had never met Clarence before and confessed that I didn't know uh, about his work, but what I heard from him that day fascinated me. Clarence talked about the maritime revolution in Bermuda's economy during the 18th century, and he treated examples of violent slave resistance undertaken by what he termed enslaved merchants. Literate, skilled in navigation, enjoying a relative degree of freedom at sea, enslaved merchants occasionally retaliated, according to Clarence, when their allowances stemming from their participation in Bermuda's illicit commercial dealings with North America and the French West Indies were unfairly seized by whites. What Clarence impressed upon me then, and what he will speak to us about today was, first, how involved Bermuda's slave population was in maritime, rather than, as in many Caribbean islands, plantation economies. And second, how Bermuda, whatever its liminal no location, right, it's neither North American nor Caribbean, though intimately connected to both sites, was not marginal but central to hemispheric trade and commerce. I am thrilled that Clarence accepted my invitation to come to Penn State and deliver a Weiss lecture about his research, including the place of Philadelphia in it, so as to further widen our view of Philadelphia's connections to multiple sites and the Atlantic world during the age of revolution. Professor Maxwell is, assi Maxwell is assistant, assistant professor of Caribbean and Latin American history at Millersville University in nearby Lancaster, and I uh, learned at dinner last night that Clarence is continuing a proud family tradition uh, at Millersville, Univers Millersville University. In the 1950s, his mother traveled from Bermuda to attend as an undergrad uh, at Millersville, and I thought that was fascinating to hear about. Uh, Clarence was formerly employed at the Bermuda Maritime Museum, a truly fabulous, I can attest, museum and museological site. From 1999 to 2005, as registrar and director of historical research, he serves as assistant editor of the museum's Bermuda Journal of Archaeology and Maritime History, an annual volume now in its 16th year of production. Dr. Maxwell received BA degrees at St. Leo College in the U.S., and then he went over to the other side of the pond for quite an extended period of time. Actually, it was 15, 15 years or so, so he's recently just back, really, from there. He received his, uh, another BA at the University of Kiel, which is in the United Kingdom, his MA degree in historical research at the University of Hull in the U.K., and finally, his doctorate degree in Caribbean studies at the University of Warwick in the UK. The title of his lecture today is Brief and to the Point, Bermuda and the Age of Revolution. Clarence.
telling a shaman, I feel like a rock star at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with all this freedom. <laughs> uh, as uh, Dr. Gowdy mentioned, this is going to be a discussion on Bermuda's relationship to the age of revolution. The relationship and the role that Bermuda played, particularly with Philadelphia, uh, in particular, and, and generally with uh, others, other of the then rebellious colonies of, of North America um, during this period of this Asian Revolution period. Uh, I'm going to start with the story. I, I was always told that's a good way to begin. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, before I do, I want to make sure to give uh, due credit to the people who helped to contribute to this. Uh, one is my former student, Ms. Alexandra Mayer. She's now at the University of Rochester. She is the one who, to whom I give, who, for whom comes the title, The Economics of Treason. Uh, she has also written an article on this, and she is furthering her studies there as a, as a graduate student. And the second is another one, uh, is a colleague, a friend and a colleague of mine, Mr. Theodore Francis, whose work on the black role in the age of revolution is, emerges um, during, as you call the Patriot years and the lawyer's years. He's at the University of Chicago in the last years of his PhD. And I also like to thank people I got the research material from. Uh, who assisted, uh, Ms. Linda Abend, uh, Mrs. Ma Mrs. Margie Loy, uh, Dr. Edward Harris, uh, Ms. Elaine Strong, and um, also to Dr. Brammer for allowing me the opportunity to disappear for two days um, unaccounted for. <laughs> <coughs> Let's begin with the story. Uh, I'm going to introduce an individual, a man by the name of Colonel Henry Tucker. Sometime around July 11, 1775, um, Colonel Tucker and a delegation arrived in Philadelphia, and in particular, um, arrived and arrived and met with a delegation of the Pennsylvania uh, Pennsylvania's Committee for Public Safety. What brought Mr. Colonel Tucker there is extremely important. In the summer of um, in the summer of, before the summer of 1775, several events were occurring that were going to wreck and ruin his commercial activity, as well as the people whom he was representing. The first of the coercive acts, as they call from the American side, a series of acts of legislation passed by the British Parliament. <coughs> the second was an American embargo in retaliation by the Continental Congress, the First Continental Congress. And that was the one that was going to cause problems. Um, the British attempted a, a retaliatory embargo but nothing was more dangerous to the, to the colonists than the, than the embargo placed to the, Amer to the Bermudian colonists than the embargo placed, the American embargo placed on Bermuda. What was the reason? Because Bermuda had extensive economic relationships with North America. They were ferrying breadbasket goods from North America to, uh, to the Caribbean, ferrying molasses and sugar from, from the Caribbean to North America. This American embargo against any trade with the loyalists, and against any trade with the British, against any commerce between the 13 American colonies and those who were not going to take up the, the mantle of rebellion, as Jefferson felt that they should, they were going to be struck by this trade. Bermuda was in a bind. There was a fear that in, because of this trade, it would cause famine. Bermuda was highly dependent on the breadbasket goods that came out of North America. And more to the point, it would have been, and this is what affects Colonel Tucker the most, and his delegation, commercial ruin 
This is after the Seven Years' War. There's an economic slump in the Bermuda side as a result of that, and post-war is never a good time for merchants, uh, particularly if merchants had been spending a, lot of, spending a lot of time and money profiting from the war. Now they had an economic problem, a post-Seven Years' War economic recession. This ride, was riding a tidal wave of economic disaster for the Bermuda group. So the best thing to do is he needed to find a way to remove or construct, and I'll come back to this word, a Bermuda exception to the American embargo. A Bermuda exception to the American embargo. The Bermuda exception is an extremely interesting term. I use this term because to describe uh, is, is a, an interesting condition. Um, the man on, the, on your left, my right, is St. George Tucker. The man on the right, of course, is well known. He needs no introduction from me. But Tucker, St. George Tucker is particularly interesting. Uh, and this allows me an opportunity just to slightly give a biography of the, colonel, of the colonels just as a context. Uh, colonel Henry Tucker was, and his group, Colonel Tucker is a descendant of one of the most prominent Bermudian families. Uh, out of that family, oddly enough, comes two patriots, US patriots. One of them is this man on your left, St. George Tucker. The other is Thomas Tudor Tucker, who became treasurer of the United States at the end of at the, at the, um, after, long after the war. St. George Tucker was living in Virginia. He was, a, he was an important, um, uh, one governor calls him a mere rebel because he became very wound up in the Anglo-American Revolutionary Movement. Um, and it was from him that this idea of a Bermuda exception emerges. He talks to Thomas Jefferson. He tells Jefferson, look, you cannot pass these acts of these embargoes against Bermuda. Bermuda would starve. It would be famine. It would be terrible. Jefferson says, I don't really care. Pick a side. Don't play the middle. You're either rebellion or you're either rebellion or not. You're either in comedy with, uh, you're either re re revolting or you're not. No commentary. Um, but St. George Tucker, his Bermuda blood leans more against ideology and more toward um, pragmatism, saw the benefits of playing both sides. And out of him comes the Bermuda exception. I'll explain that exception in a few moments, in, in, in later on. But I want to keep that point in mind, this Bermuda exception. Because Bermuda is ultimately looking for an opportunity to trade and engage in commerce with the rebellious colonies of North America as they were conceived of by the British. In spite of the fact that that's illegal, and in spite of the fact that it's probably going to be treachery. I'll come back to that. So the delegation, Tucker's delegation in Philadelphia, this is Colonel Tucker, Henry Tucker's, Colonel Henry Tucker's, St. George Tucker's father. And his delegation is looking to construct a Bermuda exception and thus a wartime commercial opportunity. Keep that idea in mind. A wartime commercial opportunity in Philadelphia. Number two, for not, and this wartime commercial opportunity will not just be enjoyed by white Bermudian thalassocrats, as I call them. They'll be enjoyed by black Bermudian thalassocrats as well. Both of them are going to benefit from this Bermuda exception. And particularly in a place where all of these people come from in a place that I call George's Bay, which is on the west end of Bermuda, of Bermuda where many of these folks, particularly the white Thalassocrats, were based. 
Our purpose, therefore, is to examine the political economy that made this commerce possible. It is also to examine briefly what my student, former student, called the economics of treason, because we didn't get a little heat for that. <coughs> Poor girl. <laughs> She's realizing what life is like in the academy. But what she calls the economics, what Ms. Mayers calls the economics of treason. And second, to examine briefly this economics of treason during the Revolutionary War as it related to both, both the, the white philosophers and the black philosophers, how they both benefited from this economics of treason. Okay, so about this word philosophers. Ah, yeah. <laughs> People always say, I like making up words, particularly. And somebody looks at it looks like, this really looks like ancient Greek. Actually, it is. The last, of course, um, comes from the term, obviously comes from this term, the sea. The last of me is a disorder of the ocean, or a disorder of the sea, a blood disorder related to the sea. Um, and it, it talks about how people, I'll come back to that. I will mention George's Bay and Philadelphia, because much of this action is going to come through Philadelphia. The Bermuda exception is going to be negotiated in Philadelphia. And the people who are going to negotiate it are from this region, as I say, George's Bay, this area of Bermuda. This part of Bermuda is extremely, it's, it's, it's George, um, the capital is on the other end of the island, so it's a perfect place for smuggling and a perfect place for all forms of illegal activity. I'll refer to it as the West End, but George's Bay is where Colonel Henry Tucker is actually from this place called Southampton, right where that, that dot is. The rest, he bought land here. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. So let's take a look at the context for this, which is extremely important for trying to understand this Bermuda exception. And hence, it brings me back to the issue of philacracy. Um, during the 1600s, Bermuda was very much an agricultural colony up to the mid-1600s, 1600s, 17th century. Um, over time, it could not compete in its in its, in, this pro, in its activity with Virginia or Barbados. So ultimately, it lost ground to these territories. But as Bermudians are always are, they're lucky. Uh, an opportunity just rose up literally out of the sea. It's an island. So it engaged in commerce in what would be called the, what we call the Maritime Revolution. And that revolution began in the 1700s. What was part of it? Among it, it constructed a Bermuda philocracy, men and women, men and women, men and women who made their wealth and their power from their relationship to the sea, from engaging in commerce, from engaging in privateering, from engaging in wrecking, from engaging in whaling, and in particularly from engaging in the, in, the, in the carrying trade. That was the most, these were the aspects of it that they built their wealth and their power out of this relationship. It included both men and women. Women owned boats, because Bermuda also had a predominantly female majority in both, in both races. Um, because most of the men were off overseas. The women said, good, get rid of them. <laughs> Peace and quiet. But most, for the most part, they were engaged in this, they would own sloops, part of the sloops with their sons or their husbands, or their husbands. So they were a part of this as well. It was becoming an economy of commerce. It was becoming one that Bermuda dominated. Uh, it dominated Bermuda's economy for the rest of the century, right up until the mid 18th century. And the essential creature of this thing, the essential structure was this thing, called the Bermuda Sloop and the Bermuda Sloop, the schooner. 
at the moment the fastest boat at that time in the world. It uh, was low in the water, had a large enough, had a huge sail. It could get from, from port to port, from Bermuda to Philadelphia, for example, in four or five days. It was an extremely, uh, it, it, the, the, uh, the, the wood that it was made out of was resistant to the worm, so therefore it was a perfect tropical, it was a perfect ship for smuggling because it was low in the water, it was fast, it, was, it, could, it could escape privateers, it could attack, it was a perfect one for privateering itself because it could run up on the ship and attack it as well. It was a perfect, and we were producing a large, and this was the essential, the essential machine, if you like, for computers, commerce, as you can see here. This one's actually off the coast of the Spanish Maine. Give you an idea where these folks were traded. And yes, this, some of this trade was illegal because a large amount of the times, Spain and Britain were at war. As I said, low in the water, a huge a square sail at the top, can sail both in all, in all forms of whether the wind was against it or, or with it. It was an extremely effective uh, machine for trade. Give you an idea of how many of these, Bermuda was producing a number of these things as part of this trade. Um, Southampton and Sands, the places where we spoke about that are blued out here, 18 sloops were built in one year. 1,124 tons oh, total altogether, to give you an idea of the tonnage. It was for this reason that when um, Governor Barrera, who was a governor of Bermuda, attempted to try to control smuggling by putting the, um, they had a, the, the uh, they wanted to put a custom searcher, they wanted them to go to St. George's to be custom searched. They complained about this because they said it was too far and it had all sorts of problems. So they said, okay, we'll put up a searcher in, in, South, in, in, in the West End. And then they removed it. And they complained about this. The, uh, the, the merchants complained about the removal of it because the, the searcher that they had put there originally had been dead for 10 years, but still was collecting salary. <laughs> Um, and that was why Governor Rare moved him because they wanted, he wanted somebody who was more alive. <laughs> um, and the result was the removal of this man, and well, the result was the removal of the, to, to put it back in the West End. And they reminded him that we, three fifths of all commodities that are vended on this island come from the West End. By the way, this West End includes the very men I spoke about Colonel Tucker and his cohort. Where did they go? Curacao, St. Christopher's or St. Kitts, Jamaica, Barbados, Saint-Domingue, which was illegal, uh, particularly during the wars of the French, St. Eustatius, Charleston, New York, Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and of course, Philadelphia. Governor Barclay is here to, tell, to testify to the fact that the reason why he wanted to put his famous college in Bermuda was because of his ability to engage in trade, and it would be therefore properly provisioned. His argument being that he called them the Dutch of the Caribbean. Let's explain the philosophy for a second. Show you how many of these people were involved. 62 men, white men, alone from Southampton were involved. 107 in, at the beginning of the Seven Years' War. Number doubling. Compare that to the other places where even St. George's could only muster about 103, came the closest to it. Um, these two parishes together, the West End, places we'll be talking about with George's Bay, the places we'll be talking about with Henry Tucker, were producing and making 
could provide him the most. And here's the power that resulted from it. They dominated the House of Assembly. The term country traders indicated that people like Henry Tucker, John Jennings, all the rest of them formed a cohort that dominated, that dominated and determined legislation. This is going to be extremely important because they're going to shove through the legislation the House of Assembly is going to benefit their trade even if it worked against the interest of the crown. And how do they do it? By smuggling. One of the major smuggling techniques during the war was to, it's illegal, it was illegal to, to, to trade with the French Scotland, but they did anyway. They would trade sugar and molasses out of Santa, of Santa Lang in particular, take it to Bermuda, flip it on Bermuda ships, send it to Bermuda ships as British goods, and avoid the duty altogether. They made a profit, a killing off the duty just that, selling French sugar as British sugar. Um, in spite of the fact, as I said, that France was at war with Britain. And their argument was, it didn't really matter. This is the point that's essential. We are constructing as Bermudians our own foreign policy and who we feel we can trade with, and we really don't care what the British think, what their policy is. It's not, they are constructing against the British hydrography their own economic system. And they're not the only ones doing it. They're doing the same in Boston. They're doing the same in other parts of, the, of, of North America as well. Before I forget, they become what they, and I mispronounce this purposely, but this is how it's written in the documents, the country traders. That's what they were. Country traders dominating the House of Assembly. And this produced a conflict between various regions, the east end of the island and the west end of the island were at war because the east end of the island supported the British and the royalist interest. The west end of the island supported the smugglers. It's no more complicated than that. And of course, there were conflicts between the branches. The governor's council was dominated by men picked by the governor. The House of Assembly is dominated by people elected by the most, by the narrowest electorate in, in, in imaginable. Um, in one particular book, give you an example, they had, an elect, they had, a, they had a meeting of all the, the voters, the voters of the parish. I don't know if you've ever seen a Bermuda church but it's probably about the size of this room. And they were able to fit the entire electorate of Southampton in a church this big. No, we're not talking about a mass electorate. We're not talking about a, um, we're talking about a, we're talking about a narrow group of people who are able to control the legislation in Bermuda. And by the way, no women allowed. They were beginning to purchase land, as I said before, in areas along the West End. Um, Tucker himself, they were building warehouses and shipbuilding and ocean-going um, um, buildings. Um, they were buying up land like that, the island that the, the Tuckers owned, the Tucker owned land here as well as over there, and he would run his business out of there. Um, they would also use it for tree farming for their, for their ships as well. And buying land along the coast so they can actually have access to the sea. And again, if you've ever been to Bermuda at night around this time, it is absolutely impossible to see anything. I took a group of people into the back of here, and right at the back of the house, you can't see the house looks, it's, it's the former Admiral's house. It was the, the U.S. Navy took over the area and laid much, much later and turned it into a, a U.S. Navy base. And the Admiral's house was taken over as well. I have a picture of it. But behind the house, there were tunnels. 
caves and caves, one cave leading to another cave leading to another cave. <laughs> Smuggled out for the purposes of this trade. No governor is going to see what's going on here. And that's the purpose. The idea is to make it invisible to the law. And Colonel Tucker comes, brings it back to him again. It's his son who's now negotiating the Bermuda exception. Our friend the Colonel buys land, as I said before, right there, Rivers Island. He becomes, and he builds a warehouse there for the purposes of engaging in trade and commerce, illegal and illegal. His is, is, this is another relative of his, Henry Tucker, an avowed Republican in the sense of uh, believing in the Republican cause, the American cause, bought, bought land right above it. Keep these, these, these people in mind. This is where it gets all it gets very confusing in life. Henry's in this picture. Um, one of my um, one of my colleagues that that been, been looking exasperatedly at Bermuda genealogy said there's a whole lot of branches in the trees. There's a whole lot of roots in no branches. Um, apparently, that may be why we are the way we are in Bermuda. This is what was formed. Tucker Jennings and Company. Keep this also in mind. A commercial privateering firm later on by a commercial firm that was going to govern and manage the commerce of this particular, of this economic treaty. There are two companies in particular, one run by John Jennings and Richard Jennings, um, the, uh, called Jennings Tucker, uh, Tucker Jennings and Company, and the second, Tucker and Company, which would be um, formed by Henry Tucker, working together as a team, and that's the delegation that makes its way to um, that delegation is what makes his way to Philadelphia. So already we're beginning to see a coalition of people who are going to manage the economics of treason, profit from the economics of treason, and get away with the economics of treason. Oh, by the way, one more thing about Henry Tucker I'd like to mention. His uh, son, also named Henry Tucker, um, married the daughter of the governor of Bermuda. It must have been, well, if they had Thanksgiving back then, that must have been a really interesting time. <laughs> One, an avowed royalist, the other, an avowed Republican, all sitting around the table. Actually, it never happened. Um, apparently, they could not meet again in a friendly hall because of this relationship. But Tucker was, but that symbolizes the problem. Tucker is playing both ends of the system. <coughs> That takes care of the white bureaucracy. Now I'm going to take care of the black. <clears throat> About 1720, there, a law was passed which wanted to increase the number of white men in Bermuda and decrease the number of them going out involving themselves in the commercial trade because of safety issues. The argument was in case there was a rebellion or revolution or whatever, there would be no free men in Bermuda. So the argument. <laughs> This worked well because there was already a burgeoning commercial activity by slaves. And this was going to add, expand on the international portion of that trade. So at this moment, the numbers of them involved in, in just in, on ships increases. We begin to see the expansion, 28, one out of four, when we looked at some of the outgoing ships in 17, between 1708 and 1720, before this war was passed. After the law is passed, it goes up to 34. So we're beginning to see an increasing number of them involved. What they're going to do is simple. Then afterwards, 40% of them, by 1773, 40% 40, 40 
nearly half, 10% more under half, of all Negro men of Bermuda will be sailors. Keep in mind that number. Because what this means is that they're going to extend their commercial relationship on top of the commercial relationship established by the white democracy. They are going to internationalize their economy. They're going to expand it in various ways that are going to benefit themselves and therefore take advantage of the Bermuda exception. <coughs> One particular man, a man by the name of Henry King, listed of his, of his own slaves, 20 out of 27 of them were sailors. That excludes those who were artisans. That excludes those who were, and that's what most of the slaves did. They were artisans, they were uh, shipwrights, they were uh, shoemakers, variety of other activities as well. That leads to the profits. During the war, one of the laws that were passed were laws against slaves giving evidence against their masters. So what does that mean? It means that a slave, when he gets down to, when, when, when the slave ship makes it to, say, Turks Island, for example, and there's, there's need for smuggling to go on, and you want somebody on the ship who's not going to uh, bring, not going to be utilized in charges are brought up against you, you immediately, immediately turn over the craft to his slaves. Stay in Turks Island and say, you know what you have to do, go and do it. Well, the slaves would then take that ship to various ports engaging in the smuggling on behalf of their masters. Faithfully executing it just to make sure that the masters don't complain, but also earning a profit on top of that trade by engaging in their own commerce as they did it. In other words, the master had absolutely no idea where they were going, no idea where they were coming from. All he was concerned about that the targets were satisfied, and they were. So everything was fine. And the result of this was this event. Sea adventures, as we talk about it from Aquiano, pewter, plat, brass, all of these items being traded in places like St. Eustatius, in San Domingue, in places where it was illegal for people, for, for people, British subjects to trade. And not a word of it going to the British problem. To give you an idea of what the profits looked like, the sense of all, you know, all pretty abstract, this gives you an idea of what it looked like in terms of the amount <coughs> that a slave could make. Negro Bess was, we'll come back to her, was being investigated for, for stealing three shirts. So the result was an inventory of her belongings. And more than likely, that wasn't all she had. That was what, so the argument was how on earth could this, and everybody knew the reason. Her husband was a sailor. And what happened simply was the fact that he would bring in goods, she would sell those goods in Bermuda, make the profits, the husband takes those profits and goes somewhere else on the next, the next ship going somewhere. That's how the system worked. Then came an attempt to try to, particularly during the war, it was in breadbasket colonies, it was absolutely important to get, uh, to have um, cows and, and breadbasket goods. So therefore, sailors were probably were charging double the value of these goods once they, once they reached there. 
particularly places like Saint-Domingue, because these colonies had overdeveloped their sugar industries and had removed the possibility of being able to engage in other activities, such as growing breadbasket goods and such as, um, such as providing opportunities for, for, for livestock. So livestock is a valuable commodity during the war because the Americans, the, the sea lanes between these colonies are being, being, being um, a, a, a dominated by privateers. And the sloop was perfect for outbidding them. So slaves would therefore sell cattle and sheep and oats and hogs and all sorts of things, livestock, for double and triple the price in the Caribbean. Yeah, it's extortionate. Yeah, it's kind of taking advantage of desperate people in desperate situation. But it's wartime profiteering. It's life. And the result, of course, was the need, Bermuda was being drained as we were saying, a large sucking song of animals being drained out of Bermuda to the Caribbean. So the governor, William Popple, passed a law, the act to prevent the exportation of meat, cattle, sheep, and hogs as poultry, and all sorts of others except ducks. Apparently no one liked ducks. Remember Criano? It was his adventures that freed him ultimately but he traded in the very same places that these, that these slaves were trading. He's a written example of what they were doing, because we really don't know what they really were doing in any real detail, except for Keanu. And he traded in all the places that they traded, except Santa Men, maybe even Santa Men. What did they get out of it? Smuggling opportunity, ability to they became captains of their own ships once the captain, the white captain was all gone. So they engaged, they made their own relationships with various merchants. Prevoco makes the argument and says that he noticed he sees these sailors showing up on Jamaican planters and negotiating with them, trading with them, engaging in commerce with them. Um, they were developing skills and they were utilizing their race because the race meant that they didn't have to. They, they would not be used in they would not show up in court to testify against the white man, which was perfect for everybody involved. Particularly after 1764, when it was absolutely illegal. When laws were passed absolutely illegal, making it illegal for slaves to give evidence against whites. And the accumulation of profit by virtue of the trade, unbeknownst profit, perhaps to slaveholders, but profit nonetheless, as long as they satisfied and they did the needs of their slaves, the persons who owned them. But the problem, of course, is that laws were passed that were cracking down on these adventures. We mentioned one of them, the act to go um, to the, the, the um, accept ducks law. And this is really what happens in this, that there is a feudal element that conflicts with a capitalist element. Commerce is essentially capitalist. Slavery, as it was evolving in the Americas, was feudal. And this conflict, was burgeoning, was beginning to develop, it was beginning to create a system, a situation that Marx had foretold. And that was a, a clash between capitalist economies of, of the maritime trade and the feudal demands of political power of by, by utilizing power, political politics to extract on behalf of slaveholders. Slaveholders were essentially feudal as they evolved in the Americas. The relationship with their slaves was eventually one of extraction by power in politics, not profit. 
And the result was a clash between their slaves' mercantile activity as merchants, as enslaved, as, as, as merchants, as sloop merchants, and as, and as slaves. Well, that takes care of the context. Now I'll deal with the war in a few moments. Who comes back to Philadelphia again? Um, and the Bermuda exception was simple. St. George Tucker, when he met with, St. George Tucker met with Thomas Jefferson. Um, we wouldn't really like it when, when Bermudians meet the famous people. Um, and he met with Thomas Jefferson. He also met with Peyton Randolph. And he suggested several things. Here's the point. Number one, um, we will, we've already passed a law that makes it illegal for anybody, remember that group? Makes it illegal for any body in Bermuda to re-smuggle goods, to, to, to re-export goods out of Bermuda, breadbasket goods out of Bermuda coming from the colonies. So that means there will be no fear that Bermuda will be used as a sieve to undermine the American embargo. That's number one. So we already passed that law. But it, here's something we want. We, we want there to be a Bermuda exception that we can trade, Bermudians can trade with North America, period that the embargo will no longer be placed on, on Bermuda goods. And here's what will be the, and that Bermuda will exclusively supply salt and sugar to North America. Well, Ben Franklin, who met with the, 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 the Pennsylvania Committee of Public Safety, finally met with Henry Tucker to discuss this particular exception in Philadelphia. Henry, um, ben, ben Franklin, Last point, embargo, Bermudians will be granted, remember this one, exclusive trading rights and protection from American privateers. Well, when they met, um, Ben Franklin and Robert Morris, when they met in Philadelphia, ben, ben Franklin said, by the way, I understand that you guys have gunpowder in Bermuda. Well, you know, we're desperate for gunpowder. We're desperate for ordnance. we're desperate for, for weapons, and we understand you've got a big stash of gunpowder. Well, Henry Tucker was not her gunpowder, it was the first gunpowder. But no, you've got this big stash of gunpowder in Bermuda. That's the point we're talking about. I understand that. I've heard that from George Washington, because George Washington was told, told by somebody else. So here's what you need to do. You want a Bermuda exception. You want to play both sides of the coin. You want to be both rebellious. You want to profit, really. We all know what you're trying to do. You're trying to profit from wartime trade and still not join the revolution. <coughs> Okay, steal the gunpowder. If you steal the gunpowder, we will drop it, we will remove the Bermuda exception. We will give you the Bermuda exception. If you can get a group of men to walk into a British battery, roll the gunpowder onto lighters, give it to, the, give it to um, ships sent by the Pennsylvania Committee of Public Safety, <laughs> and have them smuggle out of Bermuda, we will drop the embargo against Bermuda. And Robert Morris agreed. Henry Tucker is in a bind. He didn't come here to be, allegedly, he didn't come here to treat treacherous. He, he just came here to get Bermuda exception. In spite of the fact that his son has already negotiated this in the first place, how they knew about the gunpowder was not just because of George Washington, but they also knew about it because St. George Tucker told Peter Randolph about it. No less than the president of the Constitutional Convention, of the um, Continental Congress. Speaking of the story, <laughs> uh, 
they may believe. By August 1775, at one moonlit night, ships from the West End, uh, Pennsylvania Committee of Public Safety sends ships over under a Captain Ord, and they wait off the West End in the area of the church with all the space. Lighters from, provided by Colonel Henry Tucker and Captain Henry Tucker and all the Tucker clan and all the Jennings group, all of them provide lighters that sail right up into St. George's at moonlight. Apparently, there's a Frenchman there. Don't ask him how that happened. But he gets beaten over the head and killed. And no one's ever been able to explain A, why he's there, and B, how he got, gets killed. And they found his body years later in, in some place in, in, in Godless God. But anyway, um, they roll, they steal the lighters. There is the only casualty. They steal the lighters, they steal the gunpowder out of there, put it on the boat, sail it back to the, um, to the West End, put it back on the ships, or for the Pennsylvania Public, um, Pennsylvania Public Safety, why is it I have trouble saying that today? Put Pennsylvania Public Safety um, Committee on, they sail it back to, to, to North America, and it goes about the business of killing British soldiers. Isn't that treason? Imagine for the moment you are engaged in war and the people who are involved in it are providing arms and weapons to people who are planning on killing American souls. What do you think would happen to that person? Yeah. You wouldn't be celebrating on Veterans Day, rest assured. <laughs> and that's the point. The Bermuda accepted, but it wasn't just gunpowder that was part of it. It were also other elements. Salt from Turks Island, arms, and continued gunpowder. The French were sending um, sent gunpowder because the French were now becoming increasingly involved in the revolution. Utilizing Bermudians to send gunpowder to North America. Much of it sent through Philadelphia, some of it sent, then the Dutch get involved, helping to send French goods um, through Fiat Curacao, and then the Danes as well, through St. Croix. Molasses from San Domingue, all of these goods are going to North America. There. Some of it, much of it, there in Philadelphia. From North America, breadbasket goods, rice in particular. There was so much rice, they said, that it's become quite a drug, as a letter to, Colonel, um, letter to one of the talkers mentioned. All of it being sent to British, to, 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 to um, French colonies, double the profit. Well, you can imagine what um, the British did when they saw the gunpowder plot. And they were overjoyed. And Governor Barrera was irate. Now, Governor Barrera's on a problem, because on the one hand, family pride dictates that he can't be too active in the, in the removal of this. After all, his daughter is married to Henry Tucker's son. Who's in St. George's? So his reaction is simple. Number one, to find out, to make this big gold arrest for him. He, of course, it's going nowhere. No one's going to arrest these, these, these people. Um, British reaction is burning ships. They surrounded one of the Tucker ships, and the British would set there with bayonets waiting for somebody to, as the ships burned down, they did that. Spite attacks on Bermudians was another one. They would go into raiding Bermudian houses just, for the, just to punish them. And last but not least, privateering attacks. St. George's became the location for men like Bridget Woodridge, who were American loyalists, who started about attacking people who were continuing to trade with the American rebels. 
which of course meant attacking the West End chicken. As far as the black democracy was concerned, this was a brilliant opportunity because even more so, they had to be absent. Whites had to be absent off of ships. Even more so. So the smuggling expanded. They became captains, as I said before, um, of their own vessels as they took them from Turks Island and engaged in the smuggling trade with San Jose. Um, and again, it, blacks make this a, a humongous, an expansion of profit off of this revolutionary activities. As I said before, remember this? Guess when this was done? This was collected in this. This was actually the 1780s. And that's the irony. All of this really is what had occurred during the 1780s, deep in the revolution, in the revolutionary war. Um, incidentally, Negro Vest, the woman, the man who was actually brought this action against Negro Vest, was himself a smuggler, Anthony Atwood. Anthony Atwood had a partner who lived, who had a, um, a business partner who operated out of Philadelphia, a man by the name of George Haynes. And Anthony Atwood was smuggling weapons from Curacao at St. Croix through Philadelphia. How he got into this, but this gives an idea of the conflict that was potential between smugglers. That's Anthony Atwood. And the retaliation um, by the government itself was to try to prevent them from making a profit from it. In 1779, Brewer has pushed us through a law which basically puts a, it makes illegal the trade, any trade carried out by blacks, bond, or free. Before it was just slaves. Now the increasing population of free blacks were going to be targeted as well. Because they complained about frauds and felonies, they complained about hawking and vending of goods, all sorts of things. They complained about theft as part of the felonies. Of course, because it's, what's important in this is that there is a conflict that's emerging within the theocracy itself, between blacks and whites within the theocracy. As the epilogue, they're beginning to regret the potential that the war is going to come to an end. There's actually a letter that says, by Atwood, it says, oh no, this war is going to come to an end. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at this, you're saying to yourself, this is amazing. Um, Atwood, um, and it does. There is, of course, political changes in London also necessitate a different attitude with regard to the revolution. It allows for the doves to emerge. But what that meant for the colonies was that it meant a, a, a rapprochement as well. Um, the governor, after Brewer, Brewer actually died in office, and his son became governor. His son was really hostile to Bermudians. He was he would he would um, he removed them from the council. He did all sorts of things to them. They complained about him. By the way, he was the brother-in-law of all the smugglers, which made family life even more interesting. But he had a hostility toward these Bermudians, who he felt were profiting off the revolution. His own brother was killed in the Revolutionary War by probably by the gunpowder that these were, that they were selling to the to the Americans. So he was already hostile to it until his own removal from position. And he was replaced by, oddly enough, a loyalist. William Brown was an American loyalist who was, we ended up replacing um, Barrere. And he undertook the, the policy of reproachment. The result was that all of these people who were involved in the economics of treason came back to Bermuda. 
They could. But Tucker's never left, and they had no fear they'd ever be prosecuted. But others came back. Um, but what was interesting was the political definition. The, the American Revolution immediately was one of, the way, one, of the, one of the movements that problematized the issue of slavery. St. George Tucker, remember him, would write a dissertation on slavery, against slavery, asking that slavery be looking for, saying that slavery was incompatible with the idea of the Republican idea of the, of the revolution. St. George Tucker. And the, this reflects the problem of how to deal with slavery within the Republican system. And if the problem was being felt by the, by the white philosophers or by the whites in general, white liberals who involved themselves in the Republican movement, imagine what it must have meant for the blacks. And that was what was the case here. So the economics of treason um, changed the rhetoric of freedom, number one. Not only for the, I always like to say, it, it created almost a similar problem to the Bourbons, but you know what happened to them. And, but also for slaveholders, and it began a new age of, of resistance. But for the most part, it symbolized this commercial relationship between um, Bermuda and North America. And their involvement in the age of revolution um, symbolized their own, uh, the way they dealt with the issue of Republican revolution. While it made them more pro-American, it didn't, it, it didn't cause them to become Republican revolutionaries. They would still remain within the crown and would continue within the crown for the rest of the period. Thank you. certainly had that viewpoint. They argued it was their relationship with the governors was always contentious, particularly after, particularly mid-century. Um, and all they had to do was smuggle. Their concern was they really didn't care who was governor as long as he didn't interrupt or affect or disrupt their smuggling. Um, the minute he put, he, he um, forced them to have to, for example, the one of the laws was that they had to trade out of St. George's. Um, that type of thing was also, anything that affected the trade that would have been, and, and Bermuda's one of those old colonies which um, had, had in a House of Assembly, it's one of the things that Adam Smith praises the British for, for establishing, that is, unlike the French, you don't have this autocratic system, you have a system in which these people are can be involved in, the, in parliamentary theory. And some governors liked that idea. They actually liked that, it was a great idea. But there's the, there's the clash, because in Bermuda, what that meant is if you support that idea of, of Republican 
uh, also not a problem, of, of constitutional Whiggish um, parliamentary activity, you ultimately means you support smugglers. Because smugglers are dominating the House of Assembly. They're dominating the members of the House. And you're right, it is a West End event. It's, for the most part, there are more parishes than St. George's. And they're outnumbered on that alone. The only power that they can actually exhibit is through the council. And that's where the governors made sure that their representatives were there. But otherwise, they were powerless. They were dependent on them in terms of enforcement. They were dependent on them in terms of legislation. And they were dependent, they were dependent on them in terms of just by paying the taxes. In, in revenue, the government, the assembly, was responsible for okaying the government's salary. And that was another tool they used to browbeat governors into submission. Who were the breadbasket colonies? Uh, they would have been Virginia. Um, the prominent ones would be Virginia. Um, Pennsylvania would tops the list um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, most of the coasts are missing some. The Carolinas. Um, they sort of top the, of course, Virginia with tobacco. Um, but, but others, um, they were the ones, particularly, um, and, and the Carolinas with the rice. When Britain uh, declared slavery illegal, was that when slavery also disappeared in the Bermuda? Yes. Um, what year was that? Um, the, Brit the British abolished slavery in 1834. Um, 1834. Um, Bermuda and Antigua adopted to end slavery outright. They didn't want to. They, they did not want to. The apprenticeship program that was supposed to start, supposed to go for another, another, another eight to ten years, that was abolished. And instead, other colonies, however, went ahead with the apprenticeship program, and they, they, but Bermuda and Antigua did not. They abolished slavery outright. The, the idea was that the parliaments were meant to amend the slave, the emancipation proclamation, emancipation, uh, proclamation, emancipation law, and um, that was one of the things they did. in your talk you were talking about the white ship owners who sent the ships out under the uh, directorship of the enslaved merchants who were trading on their own behalf. To what extent did the white ship owners realize what was going on and just consider it part of the cost of doing business? Um, as, as for the most part, it seemed that they didn't really care. It was part of the number one. It's it's and this is where the politics of uh, where the personality is determined. It's the slaves who developed a good relationship with their slave owners, and that relationship wasn't a good relationship with slave owners, but who managed to the relationship was such that they didn't um, they managed to remove their doubts about what they were doing. Were able to able to as long as they didn't know how much the trade was, how great the trade was, everything was fine. For the most part, they either knew the ones who did know, like I guess Atwood did, would try to crack down on them, and there were attempts which were. Um, but for the most part, they didn't really care. Um, some of the many situations they didn't seem to care, and did or did just simply didn't know, uh, and so they couldn't know. Sometimes they were on board, and they kind of were familiar with it. They they needed it was part of the cost of of making, of making the smuggling work. Like with people you're really dependent on to make sure the smuggling smuggling. So it was a reciprocal relationship that um, that both sides was which, which slaves cleverly exploited for their own personal for their own expansion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
context. But how did Britain manage to hang on to Bermuda after the close of the American Revolution? Uh, to, to, one reason was that Bermuda didn't go all the way to becoming, didn't join the revolution. And that was what, Thomas Jefferson, I think, I remember seeing a letter some time ago, but this really made Thomas Jefferson livid. Um, and part of the reason why he pushed the, Ameri the, the embargo, he said that how on earth can these people, at his point, how on earth can these people trade and, and still expect, and still not join? And they just did. The Bermudians have figured out that the best thing to do was much more profitable to, to be British. Well, their argument has been that you know, they were afraid of being that The argument, as George Tucker says, is that the British would sail up the ship and then block off, which was, which was really absurd because the British had trouble actually enforcing. The, they had trouble dealing with the smugglers. How on earth are they going to stop them from doing it? So it was, it was, it was a ridiculous claim, but it was accepted. And um, the result is they just never joined. It was much, prof much better to play both sides. Excellent. Yeah, one, one of the problems is Jefferson has a better relationship with merchants <laughs> and merchant capital. He's, he's a plantation owner who's perpetually indebted to people like that. Um, and this, of course, uh, fuels the conflict between the Republicans and Jefferson post-war, so that gets to actually uh, something that your wonderful talk suggested to me, Clarence, which is, at the end you talked about perhaps how an unintended consequence of the economics of treason was in the emergence of a rhetoric of freedom in Bermuda. Um, and yet the implication, I'm thinking about the Bermuda exception negotiations that you sketched between Morris and Franklin and Tucker's, um, uh, and the group, the large group, uh, when they say, look, we all know what's really going on here, what you're really after is profit. The, the flip side seems to be true as well for Philadelphia and the colonies, which is while they tout a rhetoric of freedom, underneath it, what underlies it is a dependence on economic treason. <laughs> um, so what you sketch here is, is in a weird way is how Bermuda becomes a double in a way for Philadelphia, such that it suggests that post-war, North American colonies now, the free United States, are going to have some problems mm -hmm. because established is a illegal trade mm -hmm. and a capitalist network that, in many ways, um, challenges whether what was the war was really all about was a rhetoric of freedom or a rhetoric of free trade. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess the question is whether that seems too easy to you—a kind of a statement about a larger implication of what your talk suggested. Or is it true, um, is it your sense that, uh, in some sense, Bermuda is a revolutionary colony that resembles, in many ways, the North American colonies, though not overtly so, in that conflicted relationship between a rhetoric of freedom on the one hand and an economics of treason on the other? It, it doesn't evolve into a, it, it, remember, these folks are entirely non-ideological. They have no real commitment to, even their commitment to the issues of freedom, I mean, closest is probably Captain, is, is Henry Tucker of the Bridge, who comes the closest to supporting it. But much of it is more based on local resentment against their own powers with regard to the colonial, with regard to the British. The fact that, um, and the British understood that. So Governor Brown's arrival in pacifying them has a double effect. It has the effect of making Bermudians 
had he gone there and started arresting people and, 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 and executing people, as should have happened because it's treason, he would be hanged. Um, <coughs> instead of that happening, it, it, this blunts any interest toward that in that direction on the part of the whites. On the part of the blacks, there was always a double relationship with the American Revolution anyway. Um, yes, there was issues of freedom, but when they're looking at people who are Republican revolutionaries, there are people who themselves are slave holders. Um, what really would turn the tide for them would be the Sandman-Haitian Revolution. Um, but more to the point, it is what happens in Britain that becomes important. Because in Britain, there is a rhetoric of anti-slavery that immediately encourages a pro, as we were talking about this in Nottingham, there's a pro-monopoly, pro particularly Bermuda. Bermuda start adopting a politics that has as its element, particularly after 64, a politics that has as its element involvement of the British as, um, as allies. Petitions are written for the purposes of, of subverting local. So there's, a, there's that, primarily because there are changes in Britain with regard to slavery and its abolition. So that's part of it. It's not the revolution that actually causes it. Oddly enough, it's the metropole. And that's the strange paradox. Uh, unlikely allies begin to emerge. Um, one aspect of your talk really interests me. Uh, we have this notion of slavery in the United States at that time period, and yet you're describing in Bermuda black slaves with virtually or virtual authority to sail ships hundreds of miles away from their quote-unquote masters. And I'm thinking about what's going through their mind. What are their incentives for carrying out this mission as opposed to fleeing their masters? So obviously, that segment of the slave society in Bermuda is far different than at least what I learned about in the United States. Um, there, there's a carrot stick operation. Most slaveholders who own sailors made sure to own their families as well. So if you push Alicate the shop, you know, Matilda's going off to San Domingo. Um, so that was the, that was the stick. But the, the, any good political political <laughs> oppression always has a carrot. I don't care what anyone says. It's like one of the two. And the carrot was the fact that they were involved in. Remember all of this that that case that you saw? She got exonerated. I mean, she she was she was it was she was allowed to keep her materials. Nobody the case because the slaveholders realized gives these adventures, allows these things to happen, or ignores them, or does not know about them, primarily because ultimately for the slaves, the slave, it shows that the slaves will continue working with them. The other side of it is the slaves realize that ultimately this becomes the road to, becomes the road to freedom, not just for himself, but for his family. And that's the, that's the, and ultimately that's what happens, a growing, and some of these, some of these, one particular man, I think James Atwell, not only did he, did he achieve his own freedom, but he also built for himself a shipyard. He built his own ships and became one of the richest um, black Bermudians. So this is a, there, so there was a, and this is the 19th century, this is what's happening afterwards when the removal of the law that actually Bermuda used to pass law that basically expelled free blacks. Um, William Popper, the governor, we'll get into, put an end to that practice. Um, but from that point onward, free blacks were able to, free blackness, if you like, 
served as a protection, served as a goal. They even say this. These guys were were bad, were bad on influence on, on slaves. And that's ultimately what it's the, the ultimate goal is freedom, just like it was for Ephraim. And ultimately from freedom you can actually build some measure of wealth um, in a certain system. So that's where I think the, the, the difference that's, that was the incentive. I don't usually do this, but I'd like to pose a question of, of my own, if I might, Clarence. Um, at the, in the very first Weiss lecture, uh, Sean talked about Elizabeth Furness and yes. and how you know the Liberty Bell and how much the Philadelphians were profiting off of the the goods and services going the other way. Mm -hmm. You talked about the breadbasket goods. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the direction, the other direction, right? Things things that the Bermudians wanted that we had and how that made Philadelphians rich. Sure. My colleague, um, um, Dr. Timothy Trussell, has been doing some work on Elizabeth Plantation. And um, he also has, this summer, was spent a lot of time in um, Bermuda, where he literally got three tons of material. <laughs> um, three tons of material from the Plantation. It was incredible. Um, what he has argued very well has been the fact that among other things, there was iron that was transported to San Domingue, primarily for its sugar production. And that iron was exchanged for, for, for sugar and molasses. So particularly iron out of places like Elizabeth Furnace, um, particularly iron from, um, and one the man involved in was a man of um, Stiegel, and others, other, and I keep forgetting these other two. It's, it's, I've been trying to remember the names for the last, the two, the two men who were involved in, who, who were based in Philadelphia. Um, so his, his, that's what, that's, thank you, Stedman. Um, these, these people were, were engaged in providing, through Bermuda, um, these goods. They were basically, in fact, they were Bermudians who were connected with these Philadelphia merchants as well, uh, particularly the Stedmans. So, again, right next to George's Bay is the area where he's excavating. So there is a, there is a huge relationship between these merchants. But this, it seems to be quite parallel. Some group provide weapons, like the Atwood. It seems that this, this group, this um, Dickinson group, um, provides um, iron and other things. And what time are we coming? Does this pave the way for the Philadelphia exception? That the yeah, Philadelphians yes. are, are making tons of money and are influencing um, Franklin, et cetera. Is that, is that, is that well, what's going on? Well, absolutely. More than likely, the delegation that was made up of South Southampton merchants includes the very people who were involved in this thing. So this is, this, is this is inclusive of the political face of it. Economically, they may be divergent, but, although they may be parallel, but politically, they're together. And that's why it's, hence to the emphasis on the Southampton, because much of this trade is going through this particular parish. So this is part of it. And yes, um, the fact that I think Robert Morris is, in, is included for other reasons as well. Um, with regard to the with regard to the ironworks that come to be. So um, Pennsylvania, which is why we're getting a large number of our students who are Pennsylvanians and find this particularly interesting because they they're seeing their, their own um, they're seeing this relationship between these two regions. Seen everywhere I go with Bermuda, I always seem to come back to Pennsylvania. <laughs> it, it seems that in terms of uh, throughout um, Throughout my research, it's, it's only now that I now live here that I'm aware of it. <laughs> uh, uh, why don't you tell us uh, how many people we're talking about here, the population figures? Sure. Um, the population of Bermuda at the time is, 
we're talking, if I can remember correctly, um, we're not talking that many, probably 15,000. We're not talking about that many people. Um, what are the demographics? Demographics, demographics majority men, um, probably, I'm, I'm trying to remember the statistics. The black population, by the way, is a minority population. The white population is a majority population, which is also another factor in this. It's unusual for many other territories, other territories, really the other way around. Bavaria has a what has a 60-40 majority white population that diminishes only in the 1970s. That's going to the point where now it's a black majority. But up to this time, it was a white majority. And for, in fact, for much of its history, Bavaria was a white majority. Um, that's an important factor in this. Um, and of course, it's a female majority. Um, the, the, the largest number of people in Bermuda, um, demographically, if you take the four groups, will be black females, then white females, then um, black males, adults, then um, these are adults, then, then it goes breaks down into white men are the smallest of the group. Well, what were the main people in Bermuda? Who came there? Bermuda, as far as we know, was, was empty. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> So, and, and then people from Britain came first? Yes, um, in 16, um, 400 years ago, <laughs> um, the, the, the sea venture was settled. It was actually claimed by the, by the, by the Spanish in 1505, by Juan de Bermudez, um, who was, by the way, delivering slaves at the time he was doing that in, in Hispaniola, and then he sailed up and discovered Bermuda. Um, then, of course, there was the sea venture event, which became, which really made, it was the first time that the British had a settlement Began their, began their unbroken settlement of Bermuda. They still are, they still are the, uh, it was still, Bermuda's still the British colony. And it, it's been brought for, so it was sort of 400 years, I think in about two weeks or so, the Queen of, um, the Maxine Queen of Honor Bermuda to end our ceremony. It's a 400 year ceremony. Well, I think what we'll wrap up with a couple minutes early this time uh, and give Clarence a big round of applause for a great